Okay, we are in the second Sunday of Lent. Now remember, Lent serves a purpose. How many of you here come from backgrounds to celebrate Lent? Let me see. Okay, about a third or half of you. We, uh, we celebrate uh, Advent every year heading into Christmas, and Advent prepares us for Christmas, and Lent prepares us for Easter. So there's a lot of ways that you can use Lent, the Lenten season, to get your heart prepared for what's going to happen on Easter Sunday, Palm Sunday followed by Easter Sunday. We do have a Monday Thursday evening service and a Good Friday evening service here. But there's been lots of ways down through the years where the um, church has emphasized several things. Some of you come from traditions that spend quite a bit of time praying during Lent. I would encourage you to do that. Just take some time and maybe refocus your heart, recalibrate every morning or every evening, and just think about what the Lord has done. Some have emphasized uh, repentance from sins. Uh, I strongly recommend that. That should be a, a routine part of your of your, your, just your approach to Christianity is a regular time of, First uh, John talks about cleansing the spirit. Just say, you know, Lord, thank you for who you are. I'm sorry for the things I have done um, that have perhaps brought dishonor to your name. Um, and just admit it and tell the Lord what you did. It's okay. Some have emphasized self-denial in various forms. One of the more common things is to give up something. That's very common, especially if you've come from the higher church background. I would encourage those of you that want to sacrifice to think a little bit more along the lines of biblical sacrifice. Rather than giving up something, think of it in language of uh, a biblical sacrifice is not what I give up, but it's what I give up on behalf of someone else. And so maybe you could find somebody to sacrifice for, whether or not they know it, and to be a blessing to them. So all of this is designed to help prepare you. Remember that traditions done well bring Christ into our world in ways that make sense. Traditions done poorly become just simple traditions. That's all. And they might have the opposite effect. So let me encourage you to be thinking about that. Now, during our, our Lent season up here, we're looking at the best story of all time, but we're looking at it through the lens of uh, Revelation. Um, go ahead and put the, the graphic up there. Yeah, we're looking at Revelation, specifically the songs of the redeemed. Now, for those of you that have come from churches that have studied Revelation or you've read it yourself, you know it's a very complex book. Fills lots and lots of imagery, and it's hard to make sense of it. It's not, very little relates to our world today. And so we're looking at it from the standpoint of the songs of the redeemed throughout Revelation, because that reveals something to us about what God is doing. Last week we looked at Revelation chapter 4, where we were given a glimpse into the throne room. And I argued there, and I've argued many times that you've heard me, that, that contrary to what most of us are taught, Earth is here and heaven is somewhere up there. Okay, That's the way most of us think of it. Uh, very common in my classrooms at uh, either university or seminary for that image to be there. And so it's somewhere up there. But the reality is earth and heaven are two different realms that exist in the same time. Don't think of it spatially. You see, heaven is God's domain and earth is our domain. And the authors of Scripture are pretty clear that we actually live in both at the same time. Paul, for instance, in Ephesians 2, argues that we are currently, right now, seated at the right hand of Jesus in the heavenlies. Right now. But yet I live here with you. Okay? And so we, we 
exist in two different realms. And when you get to the end of Revelation, the new uh, heavens and the new earth, what happens is that that line between them goes away. And now we can see in all glory what earth and heaven look like. Okay? So they exist simultaneously at the same time. When God is present with us, we looked at this in the last series, we're on holy ground. Heaven is present with us right here. So what, what, uh, you might think of it this way. Maybe this will work. We live in a world where we're created to enjoy five senses in three dimensions. That's a general rule. Okay? I know that some people have maybe missing something if they have some kind of challenge ahead of them. But that's the way we're created. And so we exist in these two realms, but we can only see one. If we could take off these glasses and put on spiritual glasses, this place would look very different. We would see ourselves seated at the right hand of Christ. So John was given a glimpse, uh, maybe a portal, maybe that imagery works, where uh, a door opened and he could see heaven through the other side. Okay, And the first thing he saw was a throne room when he looked. That's language that the first century clearly understood, the throne room. And so I asked week that that was, he had the privilege of stepping into this other sphere, this other realm, and seeing reality, what we see, but now seeing it from God's perspective. There are always two realities, our perspective and God's perspective. And so he had a glimpse he got to see the throne room and from God's perspective and all that's happening on the earth. So when we get into all these bowls and trumpets and all that, we're still going to focus on their songs of the redeemed because that helps us. It reveals to us what, how it impacts us as the community of faith. Okay, Helps us make sense of it. So we argued last week. One of the things we learned last week is that um, worship... What separates us from the animal kingdom and the rest of creation is we can answer the question or use the word because. We worship God. We worship Jesus because of what he has done. And we're going to see that language appearing. We're going to see it again today in Revelation 5. We worship because of what he's done. That's a unique feature to us. Animals can't answer that question. We can And so if you take the time throughout this season and you just reflect on all that God has done, you begin to move toward true worship because you have a glimpse of what he has done. And therefore, the heart begins to fill with a sense of gratitude and gratefulness of all that he has done. And because you can see that, that naturally leads the heart to worship um, and to Focus on who he is. So today we're going to see another surprise in Revelation 5. We're going to add to that. Add to it beyond worship. So at the very beginning of Revelation 5, we're going to talk about the scroll in just a minute. The question that automatically gets raised is who will overthrow the world powers? Remember, when he saw the throne, he communicated language of throne. The people in the first century would immediately have grasped what that means, the throne. Because the emperor, all the kings, all emperors have a throne surrounded by all their wise people, their advisors, and advising the king or the emperor on what to do. Well, Rome was no different. So they had a sense of that, but that gave them a glimpse that there is one true God. We worship the one true living God who stands behind all that. It is on the true throne. That's where we left last week. That he is on the throne behind all that's happening. He is in charge. 
He is in control. He is omnipresent. He is omniscient. He's sovereign. He has absolute power. We don't have to worry. That's why I said all throughout the last series, for or against, don't let the press frighten you. <laughs> okay? It's okay. Don't let them frighten you. If you really want to look at the press, turn it into an exercise in entertainment. Okay? Um, you really want to have fun, sit down and just make a list of all the adjectives that the press uses every day. And look at the adjectives. And if you listen to the press, you're going to be terrified. You have nothing to be afraid of. We really serve the one true living God who is actually on the throne. Okay? So, Romans, I mean, Revelation 5 is going to raise the question, well, who's actually going to overthrow the world powers that we still see in our world and how's it going to be done? What the scene in Revelation 5 is going to show us is that God has a project. History's going somewhere. That's what he's going to show us. So let's look in Revelation 5, verse 1. Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne, um, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and seal with seven seals. Okay, really what's a scroll? Now remember, we're in the first century. Here's what it looked like in today's world. I looked and I saw Brett Confer holding, oh, he's an architect, holding a plan. That's what it is in today's world. We're finishing the building next door. We have to go down. Somebody has to go down. I don't know who does it, but it's really great whoever does. And talks to the city and says, hey, we're going we're gonna to remodel that building next door. And what do they want? A plan, right? They want a plan. When I uh, finished my basement a few houses ago, I'd never done it, and I thought I'd do it. So I took my plan down to the inspector's office, and I said, I want to finish my basement. So I came down to get permits, and I have a plan. And the building inspector looked at me and goes, you want to get permits? And I said, well, I thought I was supposed to. And he said, I know. It's just that homeowners don't usually do that. So all the different inspectors came out and they looked over my plans and they said, this is great, but move this over here and do this and do that and do this over here and do that. And it was really great. I had professional help. I had, it was wonderful. They start with a plan, don't they? Engineers start with a plan. Architects. We have a lot of contractors in our church. I love contractors. I have no idea what they do. All I know is there's a plot of ground and next thing there's a building. And it's safe. That's what I know. I'm sure they have a plan. There's a scroll right here. That's a plan. We don't know what's in the plan yet, do we? We can guess, based on Revelation 4, that this plan contains God's plan to finish history and overthrow evil. And sure enough, that's what we're going to find out. How that happened. So they didn't have plans. They had scrolls in the first century. But in your world, think of it as a plan. We're about to understand what is going to happen. But then we have a problem before we get to the scroll. Verse 2. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. So I wept and I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. So we may have the plan, but who's qualified to carry it out? 
And see, this is a problem because way back at the garden, God had committed himself to complete the plan through humans. All the way back at the curse. What did he say to Eve? One of your seed, one of your humans is going to defeat this evil Satan. Right off the bat. By the time we get to Genesis 12, 15, 18, he's in conversations with Abraham. He tells us a little bit more about this plan. Not only is it going to be done through a human, but it's going to be done through Israel. Now here's the problem. He committed to run the world through humans and rescue the world through Israel, but they both failed. See the problem? No wonder John wept. Who's left? Who's left? Revelation 5, verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. You see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and to break its seven seals. This is assurance that God is going to fulfill his plan. We now know that the lion of Judah is the Messiah. He's the only one left standing. None of us are qualified. He's the only one left standing. You see, the Messiah is both human and Jewish. It's not a joke. How many Jews does it take to fulfill the plan of God? It's not a joke. One. Paul argues further, and if that's not enough, I too am a Jew. See, Jesus was the only one left standing who didn't fail. He is the one. Further, he has triumphed. Look what it says in the verse. Go ahead and keep the verse up there until we move to the next one. It says, Do not weep. You see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is one. What did he say on the cross? It is. Okay, now right off the bat, that should bring deep encouragement. Don't worry about what you see in our realm. It is done. God has accomplished his plan. It's finished. And that's what he said. He has triumphed. When the scroll is opened, you know what we're going to see? That very thing right there. God did it. He did it. He remembered his promise and he accomplished it. So we move on to verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, now, think about what John had just heard in verse 6. He had just heard about the lion of the tribe of Judah, but what does he actually see? A lamb. He hears about the lion, but he sees the lamb slain. It's probably bloody. This is imagery that's familiar to him, not to us. We don't walk around killing lambs, but it's familiar to him. Um, Here, the two ministries of Jesus, which caused Jewish theologians trouble all the way through their history, They here come together, right here, the two ministries. The lion symbolizes his power to be victorious, and the lamb symbolizes his willingness to sacrifice for us, his vulnerability. So both these ministries now come together in this vision. He hears about the lion, but he sees a lamb. Uh, 
The victory of the lion, this is another way of saying it, the victory of the lion was accomplished by the sacrifice of the lamb. And it's the same person. It's Jesus. And then, as you can imagine, this truth right here is going to erupt in all kinds of praise. So in verse 8, the introduction to the songs. When he had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Okay. Now, remember last week I argued that the 24 elders in church history has always symbolized the faithful Christians. Some combination of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. And so they're different from the rest of creation, the angelic community, the uh, animal kingdom. They're different. And so they, they, they are holding in their hands a harp and a bowl of incense. Okay? Now, the bowl of incense is clearly spelled out for us because it represents our prayers. Now, remember, these two realms, heavenly and the earthly, are side by side. They actually coexist. We just can't see the other one. It's present as well. Okay, so what do we know about this bowls of incense? Um, <clears throat> they are our prayers. Sweet-smelling incense to the Lord. Those of you that come from uh, more liturgical churches, higher church, uh, some of you come from places where they have traditions where they light candles to symbolize the prayers of people. This is where it came from right here. Nothing wrong with that. Okay, your prayers, God to God, your prayers are sweet smelling. Mm. Just like incense, it smells delightful to Him. And so the um, it what it does is it ties the two realms together. The heavenly scene is tied to earth, and this is what's captured in Jesus's prayer, what we call the Lord's prayer. Your will be done. Where? On earth. As it is in heaven. Okay? So, the door's open, and we see what's happening here. And he says, Our, what we should be praying is what we see here should be reflected here. They should be the same. They should be the same. What we see in heaven. Well, it makes sense that the harps are used similarly. They probably represent our worship and our singing. Last week I showed you a video clip, and I'll show you some more in the coming Sundays, of the Haitian pastors singing and praising God. And we'll look at some of the other nations. I'll put them up there. The Bible's full of examples and commands to worship God through singing. And sure enough, the songs immediately follow. So from God's perspective, here's what he has. Sitting in the throne room, he has a sweet smell coming up of our prayers and sweet sounds coming up of our songs. It doesn't matter how badly you carry a tune. It gets perfectly tuned as it crosses to here. Okay? And so he, he hears our prayers, he hears our songs, and he is absolutely delighted. That's what that tells us. He is absolutely delighted. Okay, then we come to the first song. We have three songs. Verse 9. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. This is the 24 elders. I think this represents God's people. You were worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because, there's that word. We have the ability to understand. And that should lead us to deep praise. 
You are worthy to take this scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Okay. We're going to look at a few phrases in here. When the redeemed see what God has done, they break out in song and worship. But why? They worship because of two things. Number one is he has redeemed us through his own sacrifice. You see that? Because you were slain and with your own blood you purchased God. Now that's something we're pretty familiar with right here. We understand redemption. We understand purchase. Okay? But here's the surprise. The second reason there's a worshiping him is because he has turned us into his useful servants. We're no longer innocent bystanders that focus on our own sinfulness and get caught up in our own trappings. We now have purpose. And this is captured in the phrase, uh, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Okay, this is a fulfillment of Exodus 19. Now in Exodus 19, let's go and put Exodus up there. Exodus 19, they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And uh, this is the first time they've heard the Lord. They just came out of Egypt. This is the first time they hear from the Lord. And God tells Moses, tell the people this. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now we're about two months out of Egypt. So two months before this right here, they were slaves. And now they're sitting at the base, standing at the base of Mount Sinai and this is what they hear. Now, if you obey me fully, see that language? Notice the cause and effect here. If you obey me fully, and you keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words you are to say to the Israelites. Okay, now, this is what's going to happen. He promises if they keep the promise. If they obey his covenant and uh, obey his commands. Well, Peter does something very interesting with this exact same verse in First Peter 2. You are, he doesn't, he uses, he gets rid of all the language, if you obey me fully. It's now stated as fact. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's right out of Exodus 19. You are. You are that. That's what you are today. God's special possession. Why did he do all this? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's Exodus imagery. This is what the Exodus was pointing toward right here. The true Exodus from sin. So Paul can say, we have been freed from the slavery to sin. Romans 6. Over and over and over again he says that. The, Egypt, the Israelites were freed from Egyptian slavery. We've been freed from slavery to sin. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Okay, what happened between if you obey my commands fully and this is who you are? Easter. You see, when God looks at you, here we are, and he's in the other realm, and he's looking at the people of DCC, and he's going, what a glorious, glorious group of people. Smell their prayers. Oh, I love the singing. Listen to it. 
It's beautiful. Oh, oh, wait, there's the Haitian pastors. I want to hear them in their churches. Oh, I love that sound. You know? Oh, there's the, there's the Christians in Nepal. Wait a minute, I want to listen to them too. Ah, it smells so good. Sounds so wonderful. That's what God sees. That's why Peter can declare it as an accomplished fact. That's why Jesus on the cross can say it is finished. That's why the author of Revelation say he has triumphed. And many other things like that. That's how God sees you. I know you find it hard to believe. Many, many years ago, there was a great Christian philosopher named Francis Schaeffer. His wife wrote a book, Edith Schaeffer, where she said, based on all this imagery, think of a tapestry. We're looking at the back of the tapestry, and it's all these loose threads and a mess. But if you were to look on the other side, it's beautiful. That's what on the other side of this division. We see the mess. God sees the tapestry. You see, you're beautiful to the Lord. He loves your prayers. They smell so good. And he loves your songs. They sound so wonderful to him. We see the mess. He sees the finished product. As far as he's concerned, it's already done. It's pretty amazing, huh? This is what Easter is all about. That's what happened in between if you obey my commands fully and you are my people. Crucifixion. But it also reveals something more. It reveals we have a job to do, and this was a surprise. All of these passages are vocational in nature. We are called a kingdom of priests. We are called to sacrifice and to reign and to serve. So when I say that you're a priest, a priest is never a priest on their own behalf. You have a priest. His name is Jesus. So when I say you're a priest, what you should do is turn around and say, who am I a priest on behalf of? Because a priest always mediates on behalf of someone else. So who are we a priest on behalf of? All of our friends and neighbors. The people that we meet at work, the people that we meet in the grocery store, the people that we meet in gas stations that we wave to on the road, the people that are our neighbors, our friends at school. We are priests. So when I say you're a sacrifice, sacrifice is never a sacrifice on his own behalf. You have a sacrifice. His name is Jesus. So who should you sacrifice for? All of our friends. All the people that live with us on this journey, right here. That's who. We should be looking for opportunities to serve them every chance we get. We're no longer spectators. We play a vital role in this. This is a fulfillment of Daniel 7. Then the sovereignty, this is a messianic passage. Then, when the Lord comes back, when the Messiah has come, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the people, the holy people of the Most High. That's us. That's us. All. All of that will be handed over. His kingdom will then be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. 
That's what's so surprising in this passage. Who would have thought that God would use us? But that's what he did. That's exactly what he did. So this first song praises God for what he has done. He paid with his blood. But just as importantly, he gave us a role to play. A very important role. So all of a sudden now we add angels to it. We're going to the next song. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and living creatures and the elders. And a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Remember, if we could take these glasses off and put the other glasses on, we're surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 angels Proclaiming God because they're watching what happens with us. They're watching what happens with us. So now we can sing, we can join them in this song about his glory and honor. Because we now know what he has done. Everything in creation, look at the language. Power, wealth, wisdom, strength. Everything that everybody out there claims to have. Yeah, they don't have it. It belongs to him. You're not wealthy because of your hard work or ingenuity. God may have used that. It was he decided to bless you. That's why. So all of the wealth, the power, the wisdom, and the strength, which the newspapers would let us make us think that one party or the other has the market on that, they don't. That belongs to the Messiah. And we get to praise God that we serve the one who has all the true wisdom and all the true power. Then the third, third song, and this is where Revelation 5 ends. Then I heard every creature in heaven. So we start out with the people, the faithful. Then we add 10,000 times 10,000 angels. And now we've added every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea. And all that is them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is, this is worship. All of creation is now singing. This is what Paul envisioned in Philippians 2. Let's put Philippians 2 up there. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge or confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the song, as every layer of the song more and more of God's creation joins the singing. I wonder what that sounds like. It's got to be spectacular what it sounds like. We now see the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is that the Lamb shares the praise which belongs only to the one true God. To Him who sits on the throne, there's the Father, and to the Lamb... Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So the Lamb shares the praise which belongs only to the Father. This is why Christianity teaches the Trinity. They're equal in power and glory. Most of our doctrinal statements have some language like that in it. Equal in power and glory. So what does this mean? A couple of closing thoughts. The songs of the redeemed are one of the most remarkable features of Revelation because they... They teach us the theology of what God is, has done, has accomplished. Revelation is portraying it in language that's foreign to us. But the, the songs of the redeemed thread their way through, and they teach us incredible things about our own reality, 
the reality that God sees. He has a plan, it has been accomplished, and it's been revealed through the Lamb. He's now in the process of finishing it, just needs to get everything finished. Uh, We still have evil people and corruption, uh, but it's already a certainty. From God's perspective, it's already done. We can also, another thing that we can be assured of is that no matter how rampant evil seems to run, no matter how much suffering and destruction we see, God's hand superintends it. Behind all of this stands one who cares, who's leading us someplace. And finally, we learn a surprise is that we have a role in the kingdom to be a kingdom of priests and to be a kingdom of sacrifice. A kingdom who sacrifices not only for us, for each other, but for our friends who we love so dearly, and our neighbors, our relatives, all of those. That's what Revelation 5 teaches us. That's what happened at Easter. That right there. Father, thank you. Once again, thank you for just being a good God, because we are very grateful. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.